Mind Trip Driving makes me drowsy, so I'm anxious as I contemplate my solo drive from my writer's retreat in Montpelier, Vermont, to my home in the northern suburbs of Chicago. On most drives, I wisely pull over for refreshing naps. Once a wavering median line prompted me to stop in Milwaukee, just one hour north of my starting point. I fell asleep for a solid two and a half hours, wakened only by a ripening bladder and thickening saliva. On this cross-country trip, I cannot afford any such therapeutic dallying if I want to avoid the withering 4th of July traffic through Chicago. In preparation, I've selected audiobooks that tread that fine line between entertainment and distraction. A prior choice of Jeremy Irons reading Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita was a big mistake. Irons' reptilian voice, coupled with Nabokov's seductive prose, had me so enraptured that I lost track of my accelerator foot in uninhabited Michigan. It wasn't until I heard the siren that I realized I was speeding. As I rolled down the window, I wanted to explain to the cop about Nabokov's use of words like sibilant to describe Lolita's childlike lisp, or crenulated to describe the pattern that an elastic band might make on soft flesh. But the argument wasn't going to work on this young cop with an acne-stippled face and only a whisper of upper lip fuzz. I accepted my ticket with good humor. Forty-five minutes later, now in rural Wisconsin, I got a second ticket. But I felt that this was money well spent for the privilege of spending such quality time with Jeremy Irons and Nabokov. Since then, I've sought safer entertainment with biographies or history. I'm a World War I and II history buff, but the slow, measured tones of the narrators can put me in a dangerous trance. Besides, Sometimes I am just not in the mood for Hitler. For this trip, I decide that a murder mystery will hit the balance I'm looking for, a zippy plot that will keep me awake, but not encroach on the required concentration needed for safe driving. My friend recommended the author Louise Penny, and I pack in a couple of her books. Within one hour of Montpelier, I am in traffic hell. In my eagerness to avoid the Chicago traffic, I have plunked myself in the middle of arriving traffic on this holiday weekend. Spewing RVs, sharp turns, and winding roads suck up too much attention to focus on a book. I must entertain myself. I think about the car bingo game my mother made decades ago to entertain us kids during long vacation drives. She replaced the dreary entries of store-bought games such as bird on a wire, or cow, with spicier entries such as roadkill, religious lawn decoration, or underwear on the clothesline. As I inch along, I see additional entries for her cards, such as driver really picking his nose, kids fighting in the back seat, or man with a hairy back mowing the lawn. I make a mental note of the man as a potential character in a story. Finally, after six hours, I reach New York and the blessed interstate, a shimmering ribbon unspooling all the way to Chicago. With no more jockeying for position or white-knuckled passing, I can just hit cruise control and motor on. This driving will only require a fraction of my attention. 
time for the murder mystery. I have chosen poorly. The plot line is familiar, involving a murder at an isolated hotel. Every dysfunctional member at this family reunion has a plausible motive. I shift my focus to the author's prose style, but it is simple and unadorned. I think of my hero Nabokov, whose command of imagery is remarkable given that English is his third language after Russian and French. Louise Penny's occasional attempts at literary flourish fall short. She writes of scudding clouds and dappled shadows. What else scuds besides a cloud? I can only think of the scud missiles featured in the Iraq Gulf War and the embedded reporter referred to as the scud stud. Besides shadows, only horses are dappled. Well, okay, maybe vitiligo can dapple skin. I think there's such a thing as a dappled dachshund, but that's about it. And then there is the word scamper, which Penny uses to describe some ants. I think about all the words describing movement at Penny's disposal. Scurry, scoot, skulk, scuttle, slither, and skitter. Each conveying intent as well as movement. Skulk and scuttle imply subterfuge or an evil intent. Cockroaches scuttle. Skitter suggests disorganized movement, while scurry is more purpose-driven. I try to visualize Penny's scampering ants, and it doesn't work. Scampering implies a joy and playfulness that is just not within the emotional repertoire of ants. Squirrels scamper, ants scurry. I ponder the infinite shades of movement in language and thrill to the idea that Nabokov and I both like to dissect words. I spend a nervous night in Geneva, New York, during a massive manhunt for two desperate prisoners who have tunneled beneath the wall of the maximum security Clinton Correctional Facility and are now somewhere directly on my route through upstate New York. They're probably looking for a car to hijack. I'm safe whizzing along in my cocooned world of the front seat, but feel vulnerable as I pull into the Niagara Falls oasis for gas. Do I park amidst many others seeking safety in numbers, or perhaps park in an unencumbered space where it would be more difficult for a crazed criminal to sneak up from behind, garret me, and commandeer my maroon Honda CRV? I park the car out in the open, but close enough to others, and quickly scuttle in and out of the car, relieved to be on my way again. This would be a much better murder mystery than Penny's, I think. Maybe the man with the hairy back could be one of the escaped prisoners, his back a defining feature that he cannot disguise. I write non-fiction. This would be my first foray into fiction, and I am intrigued that I can make up whatever I want. I could pile on other quirks to my character. What the hell? Why not give him a sibilant lisp or a pockmarked face, crenulated from old acne scars? New York turns into Ohio, and finally there are signs for Cleveland, where I have visited my grandmother many times in my long-ago childhood. I see her exit for Kirtland, and am tempted to take a quick loop to rekindle fond memories, but I stick to my time schedule and keep heading west. As I squint into the setting sun, I remember my grandmother's firm opinion on the superiority of the east side residents where she lived compared to those living west of Cleveland. She said, The people on the west side have to commute into the sun in the morning and then again 
When they go home at night, I think it does something funny to their brains. They're just different, not as smart as we are. We Eastsiders never have to look into the sun when we commute. Hey, here's another possible storyline. Perhaps a parody of Romeo and Juliet's forbidden love that rips apart affluent families living in competing suburbs. My car has turned into an enforced writer's retreat. I finally reached the Ohio-Indiana border. One more state to go. I gaze ahead at the featureless landscape. Maybe I'm unpatriotic, but sometimes I am just not in the mood for amber waves of grain stretching beyond the horizon. Indiana is a skinny state, and I feel I should be almost home, but I am wrong, so wrong. I'm reminded of the scene in the movie Lawrence of Arabia, where Peter O'Toole must cross the searing Nefud Desert to reach his goal of Aqaba. The local Bedouins say it has never been done. Camels with wrinkled, dehydrated humps staggered onward, and O'Toole's only sign of life is a determined glimmer in his piercing blue eyes. He will get there or die trying. Well, Indiana is my Nefud Desert, and Chicago my Aqaba. And surprisingly, Indiana seems to agree. The license plates contain the state motto, Indiana, the crossroads of America. Even the residents think that Indiana is meant to be endured and not enjoyed. I trundle on, tempted to pull over to revive my softening brain, which Nabokov might describe as all ooze and squid cloud. Isometric shoulder stretches and sustained butt clenches that raise me off my seat provide temporary stimulation. Finger clenches on the steering wheel make my hands look like the wizened claws of a hundred-year-old chicken. I glance into the rear-view mirror, and the setting sun is at the perfect angle to highlight the wrinkles in my skin. I am as weary as O'Toole's saggy camel. I notice my left nostril is larger than my right, and there's more gray hair on my right temple than left. My glasses are crooked on my nose, and I wonder if my ears are a lop. I detect a slight misalignment as I run my tongue across my teeth. I'm reminded of a funky sweater I bought years ago, knit by Peruvian Indians. The tag read, quote, The minor irregularities in this garment are part of its handmade charm. I think this concept also applies to me. I'm drifting dangerously. My asymmetries can no longer keep me awake. I return to mental games, this time focusing on idioms. How many millennials know that the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid, describing mindless obedience, comes from the mass suicide engineered by Jim Jones in the remote jungle of Guyana? Years from now, will the phrase landed in the Hudson still be in play to describe a heroic rescue? I try to come up with an idiom that transcends time. Stew in your own juices is as apt today as it was when a caveman first conquered fire and put a carcass in a pot. Who was that clever linguist? Perhaps Shakespeare, the towering genius at wordplay, or maybe even Chaucer. Ah, I finally see it. My Lake Michigan peeks through the skyline of Chicago. I have beaten the weekend traffic. I swing around the base of Lake Michigan and shoot out the north side of the city. I'm a horse to the barn streaking towards the northern suburbs. I briefly wonder if this timeless idiom was invented some 6,000 years ago when horses were first domesticated. 
But no, I no longer need contrived entertainment. My mind pivots like a heat-seeking missile to focus on home, where I will find good potato chips, reruns of Law and Order, and a blank piece of paper just calling out for a man with a hairy back.